Hello, good evening. Hello and welcome in the name of Hau Hebelam Ufa to the 11th edition of our discussion series, Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. Max, this has been two years now we're discussing in this series. And tonight we're very thrilled because we are going to discuss with Jason Moore. And why? Because Jason Moore is one of the most important voices that put the role of capitalism and with it the role of colonialism and patriarchy into the center of the ecological discourse. And of course, this is important for us and for this series because from the very start, we claimed that we don't want to only discuss about mere nature, but that we want to look at the interconnections of gender, race and class relations and their role in the so-called ecological crisis. And of course, more is the person that looks at these interconnections. He politicized the discussion on the environment with his work on the capitalist scene, but he would never say that this discussion is about the environment as something external to economy or politics, but he would rather say that we have to look at the history of how planetary life is produced and reproduced by the capitalist mode of production. So for Jason Moore, our problems are not natural, they're political and they're economical. I'm going to introduce Jason Moore. Jason is a sociologist and a historian of what he calls the web of life, the inseparable political complex of natural and human forces. In modernity, this web of life is shaped by what uh, Jason calls The world ecology of capitalism, that's the word. Resolutely rejecting the dualisms of nature and culture as well as body and mind, Jason has created a series of very powerful concepts that challenge both the Marxian criticism of economy and ecopolitical theory. Among his various publications, one has to mention his seminal book, which is a very big book and important book, called Capitalism in the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital, but also, for example, his more essayistic book co-authored with Raj Patel, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. We will begin this discussion now with Jason's most basic concepts, which are actually necessary to understand his very complex um, system of ideas, and then we will expand the discussion to get a more general sense of what eco-Marxism might mean and achieve under um, conditions of today's impending climate collapse. So that's kind of the general direction of our discussion. In addition to his writings, lectures and teaching at Binghamton University in upstate New York, Jason also organizes an interdisciplinary group to counteract the false opposition between social and environmental theory and action. And it's called the World Ecology Research Network, and they are going to have a conference in Bonn next summer. So, dear audience, we will now speak on the panel for about 45 uh, minutes and then open the discussion to your questions. You can already post those questions in the chat and we will post them to Jason. Tonight we are obviously on video, but also this conversation will be edited into an audio podcast available on the usual platforms after. But first, join us in welcoming Jason Moore. Hello. Hi, Jason. 
Hello, Margarita. Hello, Max. What a pleasure to be here this evening. So in our series, from the beginning on also, we asked the question, which Anthropos are we actually talking about in the Anthropocene discourse? And uh, you are the person that also asks this question all the time. And you, you have been uh, criticizing this argument. And now, meanwhile, it is established and recognized in science and in politics that we are in the so-called age of man, that climate change has anthropogenic origins. So the man became a geophysical factor. And actually, to prove this fact that it is the humans, you know, that acted with the environment in a way that it changes, that it's not like climate changes by itself, this actually, at least in the last years, became, I think, politically important, especially in the context of climate deniers. It is important that it is acknowledged, meanwhile, that it is humanities responsibility of how to deal with nature cultures. So if you want, although it was politically important to say that in the recent discussion, you still would criticize the Anthropocene argument. So how would you elaborate? Why is it not important that we now know it is humans actually who change the climate? It's a great question. And you posed the matter perfectly. Which Anthropocene, which Anthropos? There are really two major forms of the Anthropocene argument. One is geological. This is the search for so-called golden spikes or stratigraphic signals in the Earth formation that designate various geological eras. There is a second, which I call the popular Anthropocene, which is essentially an argument about the historical origins and development of today's planetary crisis. So this is the history of class and empire and technology and racism and sexism and developmentalism in the web of life. Really, the tragedy of the situation is that because of the nature of bourgeois ideology, I know that might sound funny to some people's ears, but I can think of no more direct and clear way to put it, man versus nature thinking is licensed and valorized, and the scientific thinking uh, of Earth system scientists, for instance, is encouraged to slip over into this other domain of what I would call the geo-historical, that is, the history of capitalism as an ecology of power, profit, and life. Needless to say, these Earth system scientists are not interested in talking about capitalism. If you look at the classic formulation of the slippage, if you will, between geological and popular Anthropocene, you can go to Paul Crutzen, the Nobel Prize winning laureate, who uh, said, well, the Anthropocene begins in 1784 with the invention of the rotary steam engine. So there you have an example of how somebody who essentially knows nothing about the history of capitalism or the history of the modern world, uh, using his scientific credentials to talk about, well, the history of the origins and development of planetary crisis. So that's very, very dangerous. And that's a procedure that I think we can make sense of under the rubric of something called scientism or science as ideology. That's very different from the concrete research of Earth system science uh, scientists. And it becomes very, very dangerous if we look at somebody like Johan Rockström, who's the scientific director of the Potsdam Institute. 
Uh, Rockstrom, whose planetary boundaries uh, thesis is extraordinarily influential, and indeed I think very, very useful in a number of respects, sees no problem in slipping over to the popular Anthropocene and engaging in the most destructive and pernicious forms of doublespeak, such that on one moment he talks about how the current economic system and economic logic is broken and cannot continue, yet refuses to name the system, capitalism, and shows up at the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos and says things like, oh, don't make any mistake that growth can continue. We just need to adjust the form of growth, he says, on a panel at a press conference with Hans Vesterberg, uh, CEO of Verizon. So this is very much the Anthropocene, the geological, and then the slippage over into the popular, a form of sustainability for the business class, while the rest of us have to choke in economy class. Um, talking about golden spikes, which are the beginning events of the Anthropocene, as you said, there's on the one side, some people say it's like the invention of industrial capitalism, as you've mentioned. Some people say it's like the great acceleration of production and consumption after World War II or the atomic fallout, roughly that same period. But you would, I think, give another spike from your geohistorical or political point of view, which is 1492. Maybe you can say some things about this date and why this early period of modernity seems most important to you with respect also to climate collapse and ecological devastations? That's a fantastic question. The geographers Lewis and Maslin in 2015 proposed what they call the Orbis spike, so Orbis after global, and they date it from 1610. The Orbis spike notes the significant decline in carbon dioxide concentrations between 1492 and 1610. So uh, the, uh, the CO2 concentrations declined by approximately seven or eight parts per million. This was important because it contributed to the first great capitalist climate crisis, not made by humans or anthropogenic, but capitalogenic in the 17th century, where the destruction of New World peoples because of the slaving and cheap labor emphasis of Spanish and, and Portuguese colonialism led to this great dying, the reduction of indigenous populations by 95%. That allowed for forests to grow back, soils to remain undisturbed, and therefore absorbed more carbon and kept more carbon locked up in, in the earth. The a result was an amplification of forms of natural forcing, volcanic activity, uh, a decline in solar intensity, reaching the earth, a shift in the North Atlantic oscillation to produce what the environmental historian Emmanuel Ladary calls the long, cold 17th century. Now, that's important because it was the first climate crisis under capitalism, the first capitalogenic crisis that is made by capital, not anthropogenic, which is an ideological claim. Now, this era of the long, cold 17th century, the era of the Orbis spike after Lewis and Maslin, is really fundamental because this is where capitalism as a whole and imperialism and bourgeoisies in the imperialist countries came 
to learn how to deal with ecological, or in this case, a climate crisis. And what they did was they drove hard and fast to the tropical and subtropical frontiers, building gigantic productive and extractivist operations like Potosi in present-day Bolivia, where all the silver came from, like the plantations of northeastern Brazil, and then later the plantations of the West Indies and other places across the Americas. This was also the moment, as Silvia Federici reminds us, of an extraordinary transition in gender relations that was directly and immediately linked to the effort to turn peasants into workers, that is, to proletarianize uh, vast proportions of the Central and Western European population. So in other words, what we have in this period, stemming from the initial conquests of 1492 with Columbus's invasion, was the formation of what I call the capitalogenic trinity, capitalogenic made by capital. This capitalogenic trinity wove together the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, and climate apartheid. This is fundamental because there is, as Margarita was saying, there is a tendency to fragment all of these issues, to see them as loosely connected. They are not. They are intimately connected. And so what we are seeing in this moment, this long, cold 17th century, the era of the Orbis spike, is the formation of modern capitalism in every way that we think of it, in every important conceptual and historical process kind of way. And it brings together the geocultural domination of modern racism and sexism with the dynamics of modern class formation and the emergence of a capitalist world ecology of power, profit, and life committed to endless accumulation, which implied and necessitated the endless enclosure of planetary life. I think it's really interesting how you bring together those historical meta-narratives, like these uh, stories, like historical stories, and a very strong also conceptual theoretical production. And as I've said in the introduction, one of the main strands of your theory production is that you refuse to make these distinctions between nature and culture, as well as, for example, body and mind. So the Cartesian split Is, is also a very important thing that you counteract with your, with your theory. So the dualism of nature and culture, and what you, what you just described is a perfect example um, for that. Um, you don't see nature and culture as something which actually describes the reality, which is like an ontological fact, which is there in, in reality. Neither you see it as a epistemological category, so something we think in order to make sense of the world. But you describe it as real abstractions, and it's a term you take from Marx, so we're going a bit into theory here, but I think it's super important and interesting. And maybe you can say what you mean by real abstractions in, like, how do they operate, how do they become real, how do they form reality, and also how maybe this plays out uh, further in the historical Uh, viewpoint. There is this ideological premise that we all learn very, very early in our lives that there are humans and there is nature, there's society and there's nature. And what I'm saying is that from the earliest moments of the rise of capitalism and from the earliest 
efforts to transform webs of life into profit-making opportunities, there was also the invention of a cultural, a geocultural and ideological dualism of the civilized and the natural. This has many faces. An example that I often like to give is that very early in the history of Spanish colonialism and class formation in places like Potosí, the so-called rich mountain from which the lion's share of the silver in the 16th and 17th centuries came, the Spaniards took to redefining indigenous peoples as naturales, as part of nature. And for the Spaniards, the Christianizers, the civilizers, who of course were the Spaniards, they stood before indigenous peoples much as God stood before man. So you can see right there that it was a dualism. It was also a lever of domination and an instrument of profit-making and profit-seeking. And this is important because of the other element of what you highlighted, which is a Cartesian dualism. Many people might remember Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and the strict separation between thinking as an essence and then extended things, what he called extended things. And what's important about Descartes is not the philosophical nitty-gritty. The importance of Descartes is that he channeled the spirit of the times, which was not just an abstract colonialism. It was a colonialism that was committed to planetary management. And the managers would be the scientists, the priests, the administrators, the planters, the merchants, the uh, empires. They would be the thinking things and they would manage the conditions of profitability and domination that made profitability possible and then treat everyone else. In Maria Mises' great turn of phrase, women, nature, and colonies became nature. And then I want to add another of my favorites, one of Maria Mises' great comrades, Claudia von Verhoff, who says, nature became everything the bourgeoisie did not want to pay for. And that was an opening and an inspiration to my own thinking around cheap nature, which I know we'll get to in just a moment. Wonderful, Jason. You know, I always love when you quote ecofeminists. And uh, I will try what I find interesting about all what you've been saying, if I may summarize a little so that we understand where we are. We have a capital eugenic trinity with colonialism, patriarchy, and capital accumulation along with technology starting in 1492 and starting to work with nature in a certain manner, right? But we have a problem that by doing that, there is the Cartesian dualism coming, the geoculture mechanisms, and saying, declaring, that there is nature and that there is society, that there is nature and there is man, right? Why is that so? And this, as I understood you, is the condition for the extractivist hunger of capitalism. Like without this dualism, we could not justify, you know, because if nature is something other than man, you know, we cannot justify why we treat it which it becomes cheap nature, we extractivists. And of course, in this process, the man is not all men, but there is women and rationalist 
and the extra human forces that were declared as nature and could be extractivized in a way, right? And it goes even deeper. So here, here is real abstraction at work. So real abstractions are not a priori thoughts that then are sent out into the world. They might be thought of as guiding assumptions, guiding premises of rule and governance and profit making. And so at the core of this, is precisely the issue that you raised, is not just the limited concept of man as deeply exclusionary, but the distinction of man and nature was part of civilizing projects that were fundamentally committed to securing cheap nature. So they were a class project from the very beginning. But man and nature through various Christianizing, civilizing, developmentalist, and today sustainability projects, did more than just exclude women, Slavs, Celts, Africans, indigenous peoples, and many others, even most peasants and most workers, from membership in humanity. The civilizing class projects relocated all of those human beings to another realm, to the realm of nature. And that was important so that they could be cheapened in the double sense of that term. Their labor could be cheapened in price. Their working days, paid and unpaid, could be extended. But also, they were subject to the most ruthless forms of geocultural devaluation. This transforms how we understand the whole environmentalist paradigm, certainly from Maltus all the way to the present. It means that we have to stop thinking. We need to unthink man versus nature. We need to recognize that seeing the world in terms of man versus nature or society versus nature is to see the planet as imperialists. We need to unthink that and begin to shift our optic to understanding class societies in the web of life and the particular forms of domination that are taken for granted. So this is what real abstraction does. And this is what my concept of the capitalogenic trinity does. It doesn't say that climate apartheid and climate patriarchy are the same as climate class divide. It says that class formation and the drive towards endless accumulation is only possible through forms of geocultural domination mm -hmm. that enable the super exploitation of dominant layers of the world's working class, not just the proletariat, properly, narrowly conceived, I should say, but the femitaria, that is, proletarian women engaged in the unpaid work of social reproduction, and the bioteria, the work of nature as a whole, disciplined by capital and empire and science. Wonderful. So we need yeah. to be able to understand mm -hmm. that ideological point as we understand the actually existing environmental history. I'm sorry, please continue. No, 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 no. This was wonderful. I think it's really important that we go through this concept and understand because they have consequences for today. You just mentioned sustainability discourses. And I just wanted to make a small question because I find it interesting that you say this nature-society divide is actually continued in today's even environmental discourses, green discourses, what you call also liberal environmentalists, that seem as if they mean the best. So we have uh, big movements, environmentalist movements, that want to save the planet or protect 
the planet. And I think for me, it is interesting to hear you actually saying, no, that's not the point. Because of course, the moment you want to save or protect nature, you're based still on this dualism. So maybe for me, it would is this interesting to see, okay, what is the environmental politics today that we need also with a background of how do we not do this separation? Why it is not important to save the planet in the logic of the web of life and in your logic? Well, on closer inspection, calls for saving the planet invariably turn on new enclosures. This is spectacularly manifest in E.O. Wilson's half-Earth argument, where his uh, solution to planetary crisis is to enclose half the planet and expel humans from it. So in other words, uh, the solution to a planetary crisis created through globalizing enclosures is yet more enclosure. This is an example of the crisis of what I call the environmentalism of the rich, which traces its lineage uh, in, a, in a recent sense, at least back to 1968 with Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, 1970, the first Earth Day in the United States, and then 1972, the Stockholm Environment Conference. And from the beginning, uh, Malthusianism was at the core of this environmentalism of the rich. It's become more subtle and sophisticated, but it's still very much there. In the present moment, there is very much the danger that sustainability becomes a kind of greenwashing ideological cover for a new imperialism, a new extractivism, and a new form of the ruthless extraction of unpaid work and exploitation of paid work across the global south in particular. I think this is the real danger of the Green New Deal. Now, as I've said all this, post-1968 environmentalism always faced a certain counter tendency that is sometimes called environmental justice, which I would prefer to call working class environmentalism. And from the beginning of this post-1968 environmentalism, environmentalists in the rich countries were never concerned about the health and safety and well-being, the environmental conditions and problems of the working class. No, indeed. They were much more closely integrated with an early prefigurative form of what is today sometimes called degrowth that was ultimately a set of ideological claims designed to support the imperialist dominance of the world economy. That was a particularly important connection ideologically for environmentalists to make because, of course, this was an era of unprecedented anti-colonial proletarian peasant student revolt in the capitalist world ecology. The environmentalists refused to mobilize consistently against American support for third world fascism in the 1980s. They refused to mobilize against the forever wars that began in 2002. Failure upon failure to oppose imperialism has led to an inability to even practice a serious form of internationalism that is so desperately needed in the era of a deepening, accelerating climate crisis. Maybe it's a good uh, point to come to another concept of yours, which is cheap nature. So the question is, how do we suck money not only out of work, but also out of nature? So it's unpaid work by humans, but also by, by non-humans, like natural 
resources. So maybe you can say some things about this concept and how it connects to the Marxian critique of, of labor relations and uh, how it operates in economic practice. Absolutely. And again, Marx is very good on this, even though he is routinely misunderstood and misread, that uh, for Marx, markets are politically instituted. That is the story of primitive accumulation and enclosure, which is a story of drawing lines around parts of nature in order to advance the rate of profit and to create cheap labor. So cheap nature is a way of identifying and putting together the geocultural dominations of racism, sexism, imperialism, developmentalism, with traditional conception of class exploitation, although I'm, uh, if anything, very untraditional about it, and then looking at how class societies in general and capitalism in particular are not only producers of changes in the web of life, but also products of it. And in order to make sense of the cheapening dynamic, we have to put together exactly those two moments or three moments, if you will. One is cheapening to devalue in a cultural sense through racism and sexism, the work of a huge section of the working class. Uh, the other is to demonstrate that there is also an extra economic dynamic of cheap nature that I call accumulation by appropriation. And this identifies law, state, militarized accumulation, and geoculture as mechanisms essentially for sustaining the super exploitation of large layers of the global working class. That is to extend the working day, paid and unpaid, whether in the form of formal factory or office work, or in extra longer stretches of unpaid reproductive care at home, to put those dynamics together to extend the working day. That's really fundamental. Now, when we come to the bioterriot and putting natures of every kind to work as cheaply as possible, we will clearly see that it is not a purely economic logic. It is the economic logic of endless accumulation that has to be reproduced. So what I've argued is that cheap nature is not only a strategy, but also has a life in terms of what I call the rise and fall of the four chiefs. And the four chiefs are essentially labor, including unpaid work, food, energy, and raw materials. And the history of capitalism is such that the reinvention of the conditions for great waves of accumulation, that is for great economic booms, always depend upon the establishment of the four chiefs, not only cheaper than before, but on an expanded scale relative to earlier eras of capitalist development. And that brings in the crucial element of capitalism, which is the question of frontiers. From where are cheap natures appropriated? By and large, through frontiers. Frontiers take many different forms, but above all, the vast continental conquests of the Americas, of South and East Asia, of Africa, of many places around the world. And by the way, this is what's missing from the Anthropocene falsification of post-World War II history around something called the Great Acceleration, which is about as anodyne a concept as we can get and completely ignores the central class dynamic of the era, which is national liberation struggles and the assertion of national autonomy by state socialist and newly liberated countries in the global south. Yeah, great. 
maybe also to shift again from the critique of what is to the question of what is to be done. We've been discussing in this series repeatedly issues of repair and reparation, regeneration as well, including scientific approaches, especially, of course, of repair and regeneration. And you're quite critical about these approaches because you consider them to be in part, at least, planetary management methods. And you even have, I found this great quote of yours in a recent text, which states that Earth system science, so the science of the planet, the hard science of the planet, is biospheric Taylorism. So you kind of uh, put that in the tradition of, let's say, managerial ruling of bodies in production. So the question is, instead of playing the planetary manager You say we have to embrace a bioterian sensibility of the webs of life. And we wonder how is this to be done? And does that imply also scientific methods of repair and regeneration in order to kind of get our ecosystems functioning again? Or do we only do that in order to preserve also our capitalistic mode of exploitation? Well, I think capitalism is a dead man walking. And I say that out of a study of the long history of climate changes, climate crises, and the kinds of endemic conflict, social revolt, migrations, etc., that always accompany all the way back to the Bronze Age crisis, to the crisis of the Roman West, that always accompany dramatically unfavorable moments of climate change. That's a good thing because that means that unfavorable, difficult moments of climate change are also moments of political possibility. We should remember that. Now, about science, I want to be clear. I'm pro-science. I'm anti-scientism. And so when I criticize Earth system science for slipping into the political and public policy domain, as the luminaries of Earth science, I mentioned Johan Rockström, always do, then we want to be clear that these are people who are advocating planetary management. It is a boss's view of the web of life. In that perspective, and this is the popular Anthropocene, democracy is a problem to be contained, not embraced. And indeed, what's necessary is a radical democratization. Now, the question of what is to be done often falls prey to what Marx and Engels would call varieties of utopian socialism. Now, I don't think that's always such a bad thing. I think that we need a utopian imagination about what it will look like. I think that, unfortunately, it tends to ignore the history of actually existing social and socialist revolutions over the past century. And for all the talk about decolonizing our mindset, apparently imperial anti-communism is not something that people are interested in decolonizing. They want to hold on to a highly reified Cold War assessment of state socialisms and national liberation movements across the past century. So let us maybe authentically decolonize the imperial anti-communist Cold War imaginaries that indeed are under the surface of much critical theory these days. Never can we talk about anything positive that the Chinese or the Soviets or the Cubans or the Vietnamese did. Now, none of this is to romanticize anything. The other point is the extraordinary achievements of state socialism in particular realms of life deserve to be studied very clearly. Uh, the Soviet Union built more housing 
for more people than any country in the history of humanity after World War II. That seems to me something that we should look at very seriously to extract lessons in a world where every major city on a coastline on this planet will have to be rebuilt. The housing, the sewage systems, the electrical grids, you name it, social reproduction facilities, everything will have to be reimagined and rebuilt. So we need to break out of the old anti-imperialist, rather imperial anti-communist worldview to extract useful and important lessons. We could look at Cuba with agroecological practices. So when we ask these questions of what is to be done moving forward, we need to have the long-term vision, but we also have to realize that the ruling classes today are very committed to transitioning to a new mode of production, which after Samir Amin is a tributary form of production. I think this is already implicit in certain sustainability discourses. I think it is very much the sentiment of the World Economic Forum, the camp of Davos, Switzerland that meets annually, that there is certainly an ongoing push to put together financialized state power to secure the big capital that will be too big to fail in perpetuity, and then also to ramp up counterinsurgency and violent repressive uh, mechanisms against working classes worldwide. I think that we're already seeing that. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to pursue a feminist and internationalist and an environmentalist working class strategy of decarbonization that in terms of defense, we'll have to take that very seriously because the ruling class will not go down without a fight. That's just, I see no evidence to the contrary. I live in the United States of America with a $780 billion military industrial budget every year. That Then we will also have to take lessons from, as Mao said, how to become red and expert because rebuilding cities, housing, electrics is not just a technical enterprise. It is. It is also ecological justice. And maybe to even go a step further, of course, we know that mitigating climate crises is not going to work full on. So we have the problem of adaptation, which is an issue that I think that at least environmental politics has just recently taken up because it was so invested in the mitigation project for such a long time, at least in Germany. So I wonder, because you spoke also about electrical grids and stuff, if we see the prognoses that we can draw, for example, from the last IPCC report, we need to speak about at least the coastlines, for example, where you have to move like whole cities and communities further inward to the land. So I wonder also from the history of social struggles, how you would approach the issue of adaptation and the whole kind of reboot of infrastructures, of supply, of care, of everyday life um, under these conditions? Well, I would say the political demands of mitigation and adaptation are very similar, which is to use state power to nationalize the banking sectors and turn banking sectors into public utility banking and then to use that power to leverage far-flung mitigation and adaptation. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that there's one carbon removal plant in operation, maybe two, I think there's one in Canada as well, but the one in Iceland can remove three seconds of the current output of carbon dioxide for the entire year. Now, why is that? 
Well, of course, because there is no system-wide massive push to invest in not only more carbon removal technology, but the development of that technology and to pursue a all-out mobilization around these questions. The same issue of public investment is necessary for mitigation and for adaptation. Clearly, there is a need to engage in climate proofing above all, not just cities, but agriculture. Cuba's experiment is extraordinary because what they've learned is that the fields planted and cared for with agroecological techniques survive the hurricane season much better. They recover from the hurricane season much more effectively compared to conventional industrial agriculture. And so that's, I think, a big part of the movement of cities as well, because to address the climate crisis from the standpoint of climate justice means to not just move cities, but to rethink the whole town-country division of labor in historical capitalism. It means, for example, to build farm belts around cities and to fundamentally delink agriculture from capitalist market rationality. Now, that's not to say to get rid of markets. You can still have farmers markets, et cetera. Those are not capitalist markets. A farmer's market, a local market, has nothing to do with capitalism's world market. So I sit here all the time and I have to say I enjoy the fact that we ask about repair, reparation, adaptation, and you insist talking about social historical struggles and markets. And I think this is in a way your mode of answering is the answer, right? It's like, where do we look? Right. Well, I'll share with you that part of my frustration around discourses of reparative ecologies isn't what they're doing, which is often extraordinary, useful, etc. I tend to look at reparative ecologies in a different way that has some commonality with these more abstract and localized discussions. But for instance, look at Cuban agriculture after the end of cheap Soviet oil. That's an extraordinary story. We don't need to be romantic, but it certainly is reparative. It certainly is about healing. And that sensibility, I want to link to political demands and real political leverage by social movements. Too many social movements on the left have basically adopted a neoliberal ideological stance towards the state. Now, actually, existing neoliberals wanted the state but just in a different way. But so many social movements have really failed to directly engage the political questions that are at the heart of climate justice. The result being, and you see this worldwide, you see this in Germany, the Greens are happy to enter into coalitions with the center-right. They were in the center-right government in Austria, at least until recently. Greens have been very happy to impose austerity with social Democrats, of course, on working classes across the neoliberal era. So we need a different strategy that understands that the question of class struggle is fundamental to the question of nature. And I often say no politics of nature without work, no politics of work without nature. And then we open up questions, not just of those two moments of bioterriot and femiteriot, but also, as we've been discussing, the crucial role of human unpaid work and the crucial role of women's oppression in capitalism, which can never be abolished because capitalism depends upon that unpaid work to produce cheap labor power. 
what's happening around the world in the era of the pandemic. Labor power is no longer as cheap as the bourgeoisie wants it to be. Yes. And so that's a real moment of linking all of these usually separate domains together. So you're not declaring the end of capitalism. You're declaring the end of capitalism, which might actually encourage us that there is a, in Lenin's word, there is a chain that is weak there and we could jump in. And the chain that is weak, you say, and I think it totally makes sense, is the end of cheap nature. So there is an end of cheap nature because we cannot put nature to work in this pace and with this rate of exploitation anymore. You cannot, you know, as Varoufakis would say, hit a cow to make milk when the cow is already half dead, right? So we are in this situation. The resources are not there anymore. The people, the, the human body cannot work faster, cannot be accelerated endlessly. So we have the situation and you say there will be an end. There will be a great implosion of the cheap natures. Well, the great implosion is a metaphor that is directed to a crucial dynamic that neither Marxists nor environmentalists, generally speaking, want to speak to, which is there is a mighty transition from capital using and being able to use the web of life as a source of profit, as a place to reduce costs, as a place to dump its toxins. That's the condition that has obtained now for the better part of 500 years. Today, The implosion is the epical inversion of all of that, that the web of life, capitalism in the web of life, the active moment of that, of the life, what I call the oikeos, the generative, creative, and multilayer pulse of life making, is now inducing a transition where webs of life can no longer be used to reduce the cost of production, can no longer be used to advance labor productivity, can no longer be used to resolve the overaccumulation crisis. So one of the weaknesses that we see in these wider theoretical and political discussions is that Marxists have a theory of capital crisis without the web of life, and environmentalists have a theory or an idea of web of life crises that completely ignores the dynamics of world accumulation. And so when we talk about the weak links in the chain, we need to understand it both in a wider political sense, but also in terms of capital's own capacity to reproduce itself. And so the great implosion is precisely, as you indicated, it is this moment where extra human webs of life are refusing, along with human webs of life, to extend the working day to work harder for capital. This is a momentous transition, and capitalism will not survive it. That's why we are seeing a transition to, again, following Samir Amin, a new tributary mode of production that may or may not come to fruition, but certainly the impulse of the leading imperialist centers, including China, to create new politically instituted and secured accumulation regimes, sometimes, at least in the Atlantic, through Green New Deal and sustainability discourses, we're seeing basically a response to this great implosion where the economic surplus can't grow anymore. So it has to be maintained by political means. And historical sociologists of revolution found over the course of the 20th century 
that whenever there were situations where a ruling class could not grow its way out of crisis, that is to expand the economic surplus and negotiate a settlement with peasant and working class challengers, that quite fateful revolutionary struggles occurred. That's worthwhile to think about and through both to prevent that uh, state of affairs, but also to be ready for it. So the problem of the road ahead in the era of climate crisis is not only repair, but reconstruction. And by reconstruction, I go back to American history after the Civil War in the 1860s and 70s, where the radical Republicans had majorities in Congress and imposed military governments to allow for a multiracial working class democracy to take root in the uh, states of the American South. And that was reconstruction. That was necessary, that element of political democratization, but also of supporting that democratization with force as necessary against the racist violence of the plantation aristocracy was fundamental. And these are issues that we're not supposed to talk about because I think the bourgeois ideology fosters the idea that capitalism can be legislated out of existence. And that's absolutely not correct. And there's no evidence uh, on the basis of looking at at least two centuries. Let's go back to the Haitian Revolution at a minimum to suggest that if there are movements that want to politically uh, nationalize, say, banking, that capital will stand for it. So when we do repair, we also have to be clear about reconstruction and what that history mm -hmm. actually means. Mm -hmm. We have very strong movements on the streets since 2018, and they are actually questioning kind of the whole capitalist idea of progress. At the same time, we have very little time. Maybe, I don't know, to quote the scientist, like eight years to avoid the worst. And you call for state interventions. So we kind of need to scale up these politics that they kind of get a hold in big institutions. How would you... I mean, it's, it's not a contradiction. It's maybe a transition we need to make. You've been talking a lot about historical social movements and the advent of socialist states, um, also in your writings, which I think is very important. But for this uh, concrete situation today, do you have any kind of recommendations how to bring the discourse, the leftist environmental discourse, somehow into institutions mm -hmm. effectively in terms of time? So mm -hmm. meaning fast. Well, I think a first step is we must cease to be terrified of the breakdown of capitalism. I think many environmentalists, but many people on the left as well, are terrified that capitalism will break down. And there are enormous political implications here. That what is most likely to break down in a highly specific sense is for there to be financial volatility that cannot be contained by new rounds of essentially neoliberal modern monetary theory, that is just printing more and more and more money. And there, it seems unlikely that China will be able to rescue global capitalism from the next financial crisis in the way that it did during the last financial crisis. That's a real opportunity when the dynamics of capital accumulation break down because the whole apparatus of bourgeois rule across the world is designed to keep capital accumulation running. 
So in moments of crisis, there are enormous possibilities for working people to reorganize social and ecological life. And that's indeed been the history of many social revolutions, many efforts at social liberation, is to see moments at which the powers that be can no longer rule society, other possibilities come into view. One of my favorite examples is that in the era of migrations, so-called barbarian invasions, and of peasant revolt at the end of the Roman West, peasantries reconstituted themselves, they occupied the villas, they reestablished village life, there was no meaningful class structure, and therefore there were unusually equal gender relations, which explains a very gradual but very, very clear movement to a new fertility regime. This is obvious from the work of the archaeologists who are doing this work. There was, in short, a dark age for the ruling classes and a golden age for everyone else. This is the kind of political possibility that is before us at the end of the capitalist scene. And what we need, and this goes, I think, uh, I forget, Margarita or Max, if you were saying this, but there's been a kind of exhaustion of what Jody Dean, the great political theorist, calls the communist horizon. That is the vision of where we are headed in terms of Marx and Engels' movement, real movement of the worldwide class struggle. And that's partly an issue of political economy and webs of life, but also partly a question of making clear the connective tissues between paid work and unpaid work of humans and the rest of nature, of domination and exploitation, and pointing out that capitalism is a system of politically instituted markets. It can be politically de-instituted if you want. And that's what we should be talking about, not degrowth, but decommodification and using the power of the state to create not private luxury for the few, but public luxury for the many in the web of life. Of I think you offered us a lot of last words, and I think this could be one. Max, do you have a final commentary? Yeah, I was just wondering. I mean, we're talking about real abstractions all the time, and we simply need better real abstractions, better in terms of the situation we're finding ourselves in in now. And I think it's a work. It's a labor to kind of invent the better abstractions. And um, in this series, we've been kind of uh, moving between scientific abstractions and abstractions produced by social uh, movements. And me personally, I wouldn't totally give up on the scientific abstractions because it's just a matter, I think, of properly appropriating the concepts so that they kind of don't contradict our political opinions or, or, or stances. So, yeah, I think it was great to discuss also the ecological issues now mostly with economic abstractions, which is very important and which we, something that we didn't do enough, I think, so mm -hmm. far in this series. So thank you very much for yeah. that. And social history, history. Yeah, and course. environmentalism without a sense of how the political economy of world accumulation is working is one that's doomed from the start. And there's a lot of naivete floating around. And I would agree that, that what is needed is a connective imagination. And all the established orthodoxies on the right and on the left tell us to think in terms of fetishes and fragments. But no, 
So for world ecology, we say this is not a theory. It's not a party line. It's a conversation. And what it prizes is a connective and generative and open-ended set of connections. And the idea that no one has all of the answers, of course, no tradition has all of the answers. And we need to continue an unfolding political and intellectual quest to make sense of the world around us, to be, as Lenin was fond of saying, as radical as reality itself. Mm. No small thing. Mm. Yeah, nice. So let's continue this conversation. I am very curious to see what happens when the ruling class cannot continue how they did and when cheap nature actually really finds an end to this ruling class and what this is, what this would mean, because, of course, one way of ending capitalism is fascism and nationalism. So I think this is why we have to be quick, because all this can also solved in a different way, right? Uh, where green capitalism would seem <laughs> as paradise. So on that note, we have to end now. There is, of course, a lot to talk about. I'm very thankful that you found the time, Jason, to join us from New York. Thank you also again to Max for all this journey. And we will stay in conversation, I hope, because this is the practice. It's one of the practices that we it, have to continue doing. It's been a great, great experience, a wonderful conversation. I thank you both, Max and Margarita. This has been one of the most generative conversations I have had in a long time. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Jason. Good. It was great. Have a nice afternoon. Cheers. Cheers.